0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to
1: the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm speaking to Mara bookbinder who is a professor of social medicine and adjunct associate professor of anthropology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, as well as core faculty in the University of North Carolina Center for Bioethics. Dr. Bookbinder is also the author of Scripting Death, Stories of Assisted Dying in America, which was just published this summer by the University of California Press. Mara, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Um, I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. So how did you come to do this work?
0: Sure. Um, So, you know, the project that really got me started on my research career was an undergraduate honors thesis that I um, completed when I was at uh, Dartmouth College. And that it, it was an interdisciplinary project. I sort of never felt like my research interests fit very well within the um, standard disciplinary curriculum. So I devised this interdisciplinary project um, that enabled me to probe into the stories that people tell about illness and healing. And through that, I was exposed to medical anthropology. I had actually been a psychology major. Um, but I, I got very interested in medical anthropology through the course of this project, and I ended up going to Case Western Reserve for a master's in medical anthropology and then on to UCLA for my PhD. Um, and at UCLA, I worked with Linda Garo, who's a medical anthropologist, and Eleanor Oakes, who's a linguistic anthropologist, and they have worked together really over the past couple of decades to mentor students who are interested in the intersections of um, illness, medicine and healing, which is Linda's expertise and language narrative and communication, which is Ellie's expertise. And so it was really a wonderful um, educational experience for me because I was surrounded by so many peers who were interested in the connections between language and medicine and healing. Um, And I I just really um, absolutely loved my, my graduate education. Um, and so then I, I completed my PhD in 2010 and I accepted a faculty position at UNC in the Department of Social Medicine, which at the time I told everyone this is my dream job. Mm-hmm. and it's it's still really true. i I sort of love being in an interdisciplinary department, so I'm in a department with other social scientists and humanists and um, and some physician colleagues and I love that environment. I Find it really stimulating, and I had always um, envisioned myself working in a medical school as well. Um, so it's it's been sort of a a really great place for me to land. And um, and this project that we're talking about today is something that I started working on about five years ago. So after my dissertation research was published as a book, and and after I had been here for a little while.
1: Yeah. So this is not your first book um, at all, by any stretch of the imagination. Tell us a little bit about how you came to this research. Sure.
0: Um, so let me tell you a bit about the book itself first, and then I'll, I'll sort of tell you how, how I got here. So the book is about medical aid in dying, which is often known as assisted suicide. Um, and there's sort of a, a bit of a politics of language that underlies those choices of labels. But um, essentially, medical aid in dying permits a physician to prescribe a terminally ill patient a dose of lethal medication for the purpose of ending the patient's life. And it's um, it's legal in. I believe 11 jurisdictions now in the United States. Mm-hmm. And my book tells the story of the implementation of Vermont's medical aid and dying law. And at the time that I started my research back in 2015, it was it was the state that had most recently legalized the practice. So it was the fourth state in the US to legalize. And, and there's been this explosion over the past few years. And so the book really kind of tells the stories of the patients, caregivers, clinicians, and advocates who are affected by the law. And I, I report on interviews that I did with 144 residents in Vermont. Um, I also did a bit of participant observation as well in um, professional conferences and advocacy events to kind of understand some of the discourses around assisted death. Um, so that's, <clears throat> that's sort of a brief um, overview of the book. In terms of how I came to write it. Um, so I, I came to this project through an earlier study of mine that looked at clinicians adaptations to a new abortion law in North Carolina, which is where I live, of course. Mm-hmm. And, um, working on that made me really interested in further exploring the intersections between medicine and law. And, but I wanted to get out of the abortion domain. I didn't want to stay an abortion researcher forever. And I decided to focus on end of life because this area is so heavily regulated by law. And I kind of started talking to some people, trying to get ideas of of where I might look. And it was a palliative care physician that suggested to me that medical aid in dying might be um, an interesting thing for me to look at. And and I'm so grateful for this suggestion because it ended up being such a a fascinating study. Um, so as I started to think about how I would do this and where I would base my research, there weren't that many options because at the time there were only four states in the U S where this was a legal option. I knew I wanted to stay in the U S and Vermont made the most sense for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, it was the state that had most recently passed assisted dying legislation and, um, my interest was sort of in understanding what happens when laws and policies are new and their, their significance was still being worked out on the ground and they were being implemented. And so when I started to kind of, I, I mentioned this because when I started to call some people in Vermont to, to kind of um, do some background research, they they all told me to go to Oregon and mm-hmm. they said, Oregon's been doing this much, much longer. And I said, well, you know, that's precisely why I want to come here because I I want to understand what happens when laws are new. And the other factor that made this research really, um, sort of, uh, why it made sense for me is because I, um, I knew it very well. I had gone to college sort of just over the state line. I had gone to summer camp there had a lot of contacts there. And so I felt like this was something that I could do um, even though I didn't live in the Northeast. So I, I, I went um, for several summers and also some long stretches of time in, in the winters as well. And in the summertime, I took my family there and it was a really wonderful experience for all of us. Um, in terms of the title, it, you know, it was largely inspired actually by a conversation that I had with a palliative care physician whom I interviewed while I was uh, working on the research. And she told me we were sort of talking about death and um, how what she understood about her patient's orientations to death as a palliative care physician. And she said, "You know, some people really want to plan their deaths and script the whole thing out while others are content to kind of just see what happens. And I didn't. it didn't really register with me at the time as, as sort of a, a key framing quote for the book as a whole. But a few years later, I was starting to synthesize some of the main themes of the book and kind of think about how I wanted to frame it. <clears throat> and I stumbled on this quotation and it was one of those moments where everything just kind of clicked into place and I, and i thought aha this is this is the title um, and i liked it because the concept of scripting is is so rich and multidimensional and i had actually done a little bit of work on scripting with my abortion work as well mm-hmm. from a kind of a different perspective but thinking about counseling scripts that are used in state mandated uh, abortion counseling Um, But I like the way scripts kind of evoke notions of social life as a type of performance. And I think this comes into play a lot in thinking about death and planning for death and sort of orchestrating the the scene of death. And I write about that in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, as an anthropologist, the, the concept of cultural script is really important to me. So that's this idea that there are cultural templates that guide our thought and behavior. And I think there are a lot of cultural scripts for death and dying that kind of organize the ways the different societies um, approach the end of life. And then uh, some of the kind of more mundane um, examples, like the script pad on which prescriptions for medication are written. And that's really important in in this area of assisted death as well. Um, So I think, Part of what I'm trying to evoke in the book is how scripting death affords a particular type of planning that, um, that positions death not only as an anticipated event, but also imbues it with certain aesthetic qualities. And um, it, there's this way in which scripting death through medically aid and dying enables people to avoid some of the messiness of death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm getting at when I talk about the aesthetics of death, the, the sort of bodily decay and deterioration. And um, medical aid and dying affords a kind of death that is is very peaceful. It's, it's relatively sanitized. Um, it enables people to sidestep some of those final stages of the natural dying process that can be quite messy. Um, and it turns out that I think this is what a lot of people are after when they, when they seek a medically assisted death.
1: So people coming to read this book might think, uh, is she, is she pro medical aid in dying or she anti medical aid in dying? Um, and you have a really fascinating discussion of, of your methods in which you write about maintaining a, this is a quote, a methodological and analytical commitment to ambivalence. Um, can you tell our readers, our listeners, what that means? And then, uh, you know, how did you come to believe that ambivalence is preferable to neutrality in social science research?
0: Right. So I, I think it's important to say at the outset, and I kind of hinted at this earlier when I talked about the the language around assisted death, so whether we call it assisted suicide or medically aided dying, it's a deeply contested and very controversial issue societally. So if you're, if you're working on this topic, especially as a researcher, you often hear about neutrality mm-hmm. and, and that's the way I positioned myself. When I started the research, I, I would tell my prospective participants that I was a neutral observer. Um, but over time I kind of started to become suspicious of this language in part because, there are many professional organizations, professional medical organizations that have taken a quote unquote neutral stance with medical aid and dying. And I think, and and I also sort of saw um, hospice agencies claim to take a neutral stance on medical aid and dying. And there are times in which that neutral stance can start to seem like a way of avoiding controversy and, um, Avoid And sometimes when we're talking about clinical organizations, um, kind of avoiding helping directing patients to the resources that that might answer their questions about medical aid in dying. So I kind of started to see this neutrality at times as a cop-out and as a way of kind of disengaging from this really complicated issue. So for me, ambivalence as an alternative to neutrality it's less a reluctance to take a stance, which is what I see with neutrality, then it's an acknowledgement that your stance can shift over time. And this is really what happened with my own feelings about medical aid and dying over the course of my research. So it was very interesting. When I began this project, I kind of came into it feeling largely supportive of aid and dying. But from a pretty uninformed and naive viewpoint, but I, I just kind of I think approached it through the same lens that I had my abortion research where I th- th- sort of felt like well, I'm pro-choice and, and clearly I'm in support of this practice. But my views were really challenged um, over the first summer of my field work where I interviewed a lot of ad- advocates on both sides of the issue. And I really found the opponent's arguments quite compelling because we talked a lot about how a lot of the cultural preoccupation with medical aid and dying was actually driven by a fear of death and, and by a reluctance to get up close with death. And, um, that in many cases they would sort of explain to me the goals of medical aid and dying could be met in other ways. And I found some of this discussion really persuasive. Um, now, in my second summer of field work, I spent a lot of time getting the stories of folks who had been through the process and interviewing their caregivers about what their deaths had been like. And that made me realize that medical aid and dying can, you know, make such an incredible positive difference in, in some people's lives and and that many of their goals cannot be met through alternative means. And so my stance kind of swung back in the other direction. And ultimately, I I ended up in a place where I feel somewhat ambivalent. I, I think this is a really great option for some people and um, I'm happy that it exists. Um, but I'm kind of ambivalent about it as a, as a policy intervention, um, particularly when we lack equitable access to palliative care in this country. And um, I think if we truly wanted to improve end of life care for for all Americans, this would not be the way to go because it's such a small number of of people that end up accessing it. So, so I have like some ambivalence there about the amount of attention that it takes up at, or the amount of attention that it captivates as kind of a a health policy issue because I think it can be distracting from from kind of more basic. Ways of improving end of life care. Um, So, I guess to sum up, I sort of see ambivalence as this reflexive, ongoing, negotiated process of continually challenging your views. And for me, this was really essential to developing over time a nuanced perspective on an issue as complex as medical aid and dying.
1: So um, I'd like to talk a little bit about Vermont because the book really does a wonderful job of um, using sort of rich contextual analysis of, of Vermont and what you see unfolding on the ground there. And then these larger questions of, about end of life care, about assisted suicide, about euthanasia, about, you know, even what constitutes a good death. Um, So I wondered if you could talk just a little bit about um, in what ways did you find Vermont to be representative of larger national or international conversations? And in what ways was it really a unique case study?
0: Sure. Um, You know, Vermont, it's very interesting. Um, It was the first state to legalize medical aid and dying through a legislative pathway um, rather than the courts or ballot initiative. And so from the very beginning, um, it, it, there was something kind of unique about it. And, um, that was sort of subsequently California used the legislative pathway and, and that's no longer been the case, but, um, for, for national advocates for assisted death, there was a lot of attention on Vermont early on and, um, it, there was kind of an interesting history through which the law was passed. It really was the result of a homegrown, um, advocacy campaign there. There was basically a group of wealthy retirees that got together and they wanted to have this option for themselves and they formed an advocacy group and they were able to get the law passed. Um, it, it took 12 years. Um, But it it was a really kind of incredible journey. And there was some involvement toward the end from some of the larger national advocacy groups like Compassion and Choices and um, the Death with Dignity National Center. But but that was really kind of at the end. Um, So it it was a homegrown effort. And um, I think Vermonters are proud of this. And they see this outcome in some ways as um, attributed to kind of this do-it-yourself, Yankee mentality of, um, of, of Vermonters. And so it can raise questions about how representative is the Vermont case. And I've certainly had that question posed to me again and again as I talk about this research. Um, I think, you know, in terms of other states in the U.S. where we have medical aid and dying statutes, um, historically, they have been largely white more secular, more progressive, and often with a libertarian streak. Um, all of these attributes are true of Vermont. They may not be especially representative of the U.S. as a whole. I think that's part of why there's been a lot of interest in seeing what happens in California, because it's such a, a large and diverse state and sort of seeing which um, which populations utilize <clears throat> their, their um Aid and dying law can be interesting for kind of thinking about um, preferences on a preferences for aid and dying on a much larger scale. Um, so I think you know there there are ways in which maybe Vermont is a little bit idiosyncratic, but I really feel that the underlying values that are driving assisted death and that are driving these movements, which um, I think really have to do with a desire for autonomy and control over one's death I think that those are nationally representative um, I think and, and even to a certain extent um, internationally representative I think there's a lot of the same values that that we're seeing um, globally in looking at how these movements are growing and so I kind of see Vermont in some ways as this microcosm that can tell us a lot about the um, how this issue is evolving on a, a broader scale because there's just been so much legislation um, in the past, even very recently, um, Australia, New Zealand, Spain, Italy, Austria. So you know, I, I think there's certainly culturally specific elements and I wouldn't want to minimize those as an anthropologist, but I, I do think um, that we can learn a, a lot from a, a case like Vermont that we can apply to other settings.
1: I'd like to talk a little bit about what, um, what the motivations of advocates for aid in dying might be. Um, you compare the process of scripting death to the process of writing a birth plan, um, you know, in preparation for childbirth. Um, can you tell, tell us a little bit more about that and what, what does this process look like and why do people want to pursue it so badly?
0: yeah um I think well it you know of course there are many there are many different reasons um it, I think a common misconception is that people want aid in dying because they are afraid of pain at the end of life and there's been a lot of research mostly conducted out of Oregon suggesting that pain is probably not a primary motivation um it, it did come up a bit in my research but but not typically as the main driver. Um, typically, it has to do more with things like a desire to, to maintain autonomy is kind of the bioethics language that's often used. I prefer to talk about control in the book. Um, but that is to say that to have um, some ownership over the, di- the dying process and to be able to say, you know, I, I sort of would rather not stick around for this last part where i'm going to be um in this really diminished state for several days um or whatever it is or i um i don't want to um to stick around if i'm going to need help with toileting and if i'm going to be incontinent and that's one that comes up quite a lot so it's really about making choices about what quality of life is acceptable or not if one knows That you know you have a terminal diagnosis, and to be able to avoid certain forms of suffering at the end, and often it's um, it's psychological and emotional and spiritual suffering more than the bodily suffering. Um, Many also want to avoid depending on others for certain forms of care, and that's where kind of that theme of um, incontinence that I was referring to a moment ago. I mean, I think that's really huge. They they don't want to be a burden on their families in in various ways, um, and that motive is a bit more complicated because it is something I think that is often silenced um, when uh, particularly in the advocacy discourses, because it's it's kind of problematic to say, well, I I want to die because I don't want to burden my family because that can start to raise concerns about, um, whether the choice is voluntary and whether, um, we might want to worry about coercion. And so I think it's been much simpler for advocates to emphasize autonomy and to kind of downplay the, the relational factors that are really kind of, um, stitched into the fabric of people's social lives and and that I think are always influencing these choices, but, but often go unsaid. And, um, and that's something that's been really interesting to me in my research. Um, so in terms of what, what the death plan looks like and how it compares to a birth plan, I mean, honestly, I think sometimes they're not all that different from a birth plan. I think people are talking about, um, when they want to die, which I guess is is less of a choice when it comes to a birth plan, but um, who they want there, what they want the room to be like, who they want by their side, what kind of an atmosphere they want, what kind of music, um, prayers, you know, all these things. Some people want a kind of a party. They, they want all their friends and all their family and a toast at the end. And some people prefer a more quiet and somber mood. Um, I think the the plan in thinking about the notion of a death plan. I mean, I don't know that people often write it out and formalize it in that way, but it's something that they put a lot of thought into. Um, the other thing that that I would just add there is that in thinking about the concept of a death plan, I mean, a lot of times. It's not so much about the death itself when you make this choice, but it's about how you're going to live your final days. And so I think there's kind of this interesting dialectic here in which planning your death frees you up to really live according to your values in, in those last few days. And so planning the death is is also um, about planning for life. and. Um, And how you want to spend that time. And again, I saw like a really interesting mixture of um, uh, very meaningful connections with family and friends. And then often some more mundane things like um, doing your taxes, Uh (laughs) filling out paperwork, that sort of thing, signing over the, the deed to your car um and and it's really interesting to see how those come together in these final moments
1: um how prevalent is aid in dying could you 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 deal with that a, a little bit in the book um in terms of whether this is a, a, a viable large scale solution for a lot of the problems that we we have with um you know facing death in the healthcare system in the US um how many do you know how many people have pursued it in Vermont since since, it, since 2014, 2015?
0: Yeah, great question. Um, and the answer is it's, um, it's exceedingly rare. Um, so there have been a couple of reports that the State Department of Health has released, uh, which is a requirement of the law, sort of giving very basic details about utilization. And the first one covered the period from, uh, June 2013 through June 2017. Um, and actually, as as you noted, nothing really happened for the first year or two that the law was passed. And that's because um, the law was officially effective as soon as it was passed, but there was no public health apparatus in place yet to regulate it. And so physicians really didn't feel comfortable prescribing until that was in place. And there's sort of a lot of political reasons uh, for for why the law was written in that way that I won't go into right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, when when the first prescription was written, which I believe was kind of around the um, fall of 2014, um, over that first couple of years, there were 52 individuals that filed the paperwork and submitted it to the state. And 29 of those were known to have ingested the medication, which is actually a slightly higher rate of completion than um, has been reported in Oregon, which is a bit interesting. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, And then in the second reporting period, which covered 2017 to 19, the the number was even lower. It was 34 individuals submitting paperwork and um, 28 took the medication. And uh, these reports come out every two years. So there will be another one in January of, of next year. Um, but essentially I mean that the absolute counts are very low Vermont's population is right around 600,000 but if you look at the percentages as a proportion of, um, of total deaths in the state they're comparable to what we've seen in Oregon where the rate for death with, with dignity has been around 19 per 10,000 deaths so it's 0.2 percent of all deaths um, so again I mean that that sort of tells you something about this issue which um, Consumes so much popular attention and and really has has taken up a lot of space in the popular media and yet um, the absolute numbers of people who who use it are small. Now I would argue that the impact is is larger than those numbers because I think that it puts certain conversations on the table about death and dying and planning for death that wouldn't be there otherwise. So um, so I still think it's a really important issue and that even if people don't pursue it, it Um, it has an impact on kind of the broader cultural conversation about death and dying. But I I do think it's important to acknowledge that this is a very small number of people.
1: I'd like to talk a little bit about physicians' responsibility and some of the controversy around uh, how they, you know, how they should be involved in broaching these conversations. So you you point out, and we know that physicians are reticent to even bring up the subject of palliative care or hospice care. Um, but in Vermont there is this very sort of heated debate about whether physicians should be responsible for offering aid in dying. And you compare it to debates around abortion or gun safety where different states are kind of regulating what physicians can or cannot say about these charged topics. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Sure. I mean Death is—it's a taboo subject in the United States to begin with. I think um, I think we all know that, and physicians really aren't trained very well to talk about death and dying. They're socialized to cure illness. I have been teaching a class to second-year medical students for the past uh, five or six years, um, really delving into to some of the cultural issues surrounding death and dying, and. The feedback that I get from this course is so positive because they they say, you know, this is really not something that we have many spaces in our curriculum to address. So I think there's a kind of a a significant barrier to entry to begin with to even bring up the subject of death. In the case of counseling patients about medical aid and dying, there are even further hurdles because there are, um, I think, justifiable worries that introducing this topic might signal to an impa- to a patient that you, um, that you endorse it or that you're giving up hope for a cure, that, you know, you think all hope is lost. There, there's really, um, there's a shift with hospice as well to kind of introducing, okay, now we're at the point where we're really going to talk about end-of-life options. And for an issue that is um, kind of politically and morally contested, If you don't, if this does not align with the patient's values, you may risk harm to the relationship if you bring it up, and and the patient might feel that um, that you're endorsing this, and that might be problematic. So, so it's a very risky conversation. Um, But I have really been um, suggesting in my work over the past few years that there are ethical concerns with not offering qualifying patients information about this option. Um, and, you know, interestingly, Claire, you said that in your, the way you framed the question that there's been heated debate um, in Vermont about whether or not physicians should, should kind of counsel patients about this. And it's partially true because there was a lawsuit um in 2016, 17, um, that that addressed this issue of whether or not physicians had a duty to inform. but And the suit was eventually dismissed, but there really actually hasn't been heated debate nationally about this issue, which has surprised me. And a lot of physicians have taken it at, for granted that one should never introduce this topic and one should always wait for a patient to introduce it first and the problem with that that I have been arguing is that then only patients who already know about it will have access to it and because more privileged patients tend to already have information about it you're sort of um, ensuring that this option is is going to be more available to more socioeconomically privileged patients and so I think if we're saying societally that this is this is a good option. We're making it legally available. We think for some people it's a good option. Then then I would say that really it should be available to everyone and, and not just to more affluent patients, which um, has been the case kind of statistically looking at Oregon because again, they have the best data. Um, so I I think it's it's a murky conversation. It's a complicated conversation, but I, I don't think that we should take it for granted that um, physicians should simply wait for patients to bring it up and in fact when I looked at this empirically with just the very small sample of physicians in my study, um, we found that about half of the physicians were bringing it up in some cases before a patient did just to kind of make sure that they were aware of it um, which is not to say they would do it for all patients or you know they, they might not do it if there was a clear signal that Patient would never go for this option, but but sometimes they, they were kind of making their their patients aware. Um, in terms of sort of how this compares to to talking about abortion or gun safety, I mean yes, I so I've done a lot of work on abortion, and so I'm I'm very interested in the way that um, the state mandates speech around these controversial topics. I think that may be part of what is going on um with medical aid and dying that there may be a political concern about um uh you know a physician's political agenda getting in the way of these end-of-life conversations. But really I think it's less clear that this is what is at stake with medical aid and dying. I think the politics may be part of the picture, but I also think it's just so fraught um from the get-go to talk about death in in a way that um, I'm not completely sure is is the case for for guns um mm-hmm. you know, certainly may maybe so for abortion in certain contexts, but um, but I think what the difference is is that like death is is so pervasive and it's mm-hmm. something that is going to happen to all of us and yet, you know that there's um, there's this reluctance that, we can't only look at, I think, from this politicized lens.
1: I'd like to talk a little bit more about physicians' role in the process of, of aid in dying. Um, because you argue that the this process is, it's is, it's it's complex, it's morally fraught. Um, it, it is not simply writing a prescription for a lethal dose of medication. It involves more than that. And one of the interesting things that the book does is to provide a really rich description of of what that looks like in sort of different cases. So so how do physicians help script death?
0: Yeah. Um, You know, there's a quote from a physician in the study that I really love, which is speaking of guns. She says, you don't just hand them the loaded gun without giving them the gun education. Um, And so I think the point here is that there's so there, there's a kind of a moral obligation to do a lot of counseling and education around medical aid and dying and it's quite morally and emotionally taxing for physicians because you want to make sure that if they are going to choose this option that they're really doing so for the right reasons that they that their needs can't be addressed um, through another means like symptom control for example that they, fully understand the process. Um, and, and so you have to explore the reasons for the request, and you have to, um, talk about how their family feels about it. So there's just, there's a lot that goes into it. And as one physician pointed out to me, I can't bill for this. I mean, there's mm-hmm. no billing code for, for talking about medical aid and dying. If the patient does decide to go ahead with it, there's quite a lot of logistical like work involved. And I think this is one, um, arena in which um, Vermont may be a little bit unique, but because it was such a small state and there weren't very many physicians that were doing it, um, there wasn't kind of a clear pathway for what you actually do when, when you want to prescribe. So for one thing, the state doesn't dictate what prescription to write, and, you know, what the medication is, what, what the drug cocktail is. So, um, particularly at the beginning, there was a lot of work involved in trying to figure out how do I do this. And, and sometimes that involved connecting with physicians in states like Oregon and, and Washington, which um, some of the advocacy organizations can help arrange. Um, but then you have to figure out what pharmacy is going to fill it. And at times, over the course of, of this law in Vermont, there has been maybe only one pharmacy in the state that's willing to do it. So the physicians had to kind of figure that out. They had to sometimes help the patients navigate the cost. Um, and so it's, it's just a lot of work. And then after that sort of bureaucratic part, a lot of these positions and, and also nurse practitioners sometimes and, and hospice social workers were also involved in planning for the death and figuring out who's going to be there, what um, kind of backup safety measures might need to be in place if something goes awry. Um, sometimes even attending the death, and and not all of the physicians that I interviewed felt comfortable doing that, but but several of them were present for the death as well. Um, so you know, there's there's a wide range of ways in which physicians can um, can interface with medical aid in dying, and it's not just writing prescription, and actually. I was really interested in the fact that, that sometimes writing the prescription was a fairly minimal role. So I, I interviewed one physician who kind of drew her moral line in the sand at writing the prescription, but she did everything else. She helped find the second physician who's needed, or she helped find the prescribing, she helped find the prescribing physician, and then she agreed to serve as the second certifying um, physician, which is a legal requirement of the law. She helped figure out the medication, the pharmacy. She um, helped plan for the death, so she was extremely involved, um, and yet didn't feel comfortable writing the actual prescription. Um, and I just I found that really telling because I think a lot of times the ways this is characterized in in the media and also in some of the scholarly literature puts the emphasis purely on the prescription.
1: I'd like to end by talking a little bit about systemic issues. So we already, um, you mentioned that it, it's a relatively small percentage of the of the population that pursues aid and dying, and that the people who do tend to be pretty well educated and and pretty privileged. Um, tell us a little bit about how attention to aid and dying, both exposes and obscures flaws in the healthcare system, particularly around end of life care in America.
0: Yeah. So one of the biggest findings and takeaway messages of my research was that access to aid in dying is um, is is uneven, and um, a lot of patients encounter barriers. And um, that's not surprising, I guess, as someone who has been studying U.S. healthcare for a long time, because we we see these issues cropping up in um, all domains of healthcare. Um, But a lot of of the issues with aid in dying had to do with kind of um, with access to a physician who was willing to prescribe the medication, which which was a huge barrier for many patients. And I just found that, and and by the way, this is not just the case in Vermont, but pretty much every state where medical aid dying is legal has had some issues with this. and patients that are more socioeconomically privileged have better access. And and some of that has to do with the fact that they have better access to physicians' social networks. And, and that was um, a factor in Vermont where it's kind of a small state and in smaller towns, everyone knows everyone. And so you might be more likely to kind of know someone that knows the doctor that's willing to prescribe. Um, there are some issues with cost as well. Um, you have to be able to pay for the medication and, um, some insurance companies cover it, but not all of them do. And for anyone that's over 65, Medicare simply won't cover this because there are federal restrictions, um, surrounding, um, using federal funding for anything related to abortion or assisted death. And, and so, um, you know, in, in one case that a physician told me about there was, she had a patient who was fairly poor and, and, you know, expressed interest in, um, in the medication. And, and she told him that the dose would cost $500, which to be honest, is, um, is much less than, than what some people paid because there was a point at which, um, Secanol was the most popular option and it cost $3,000 for the lethal dose. So, um, there were alternative, uh, medication protocols were developed um, to try to address that cost barrier. But even this $500 for this one patient, he said, oh, you know, absolutely not, forget it. And he actually went on to live a lot longer and do pretty well, which, hmm. which is interesting to see. Um, but, you know, it, like everything in, in US medicine, um, this it seems to be an option enjoyed by the relatively privileged. And it's used by such a small number of people that I think. As I mentioned earlier, it's just not the best way to give the most number of people um, better deaths, if we want to think about it from kind of a utilitarian perspective. Um, if we want to give most people better deaths, we improve access to ha- hospice and palliative care for everyone. Um, and, and hospice is wonderful. They can, they can do wonderful things, but um, it's still quite hard to access in, for many people in, in certain parts of the country. Um, And I think that the advocacy attention that is devoted to medical aid and dying can be distracting. It can um, distract attention and also money, lobbying dollars, from other kinds of policy changes that would improve end-of-life care more generally. Um, And so I think that's sort of the way in which it can obscure some of these flaws in the healthcare system if, if we put too much attention on it.
1: Well, Mara, we have taken up a lot of your time, and uh, we've come to the traditional final question, which is, "What are you working on next?" Um,
0: so, I have been spending the past six or so months on a study um, that that was influenced by the pandemic, because everyone mm-hmm. is influenced by the pandemic these days. Um, but I have been looking at physicians' experiences providing frontline care for patients hospitalized with COVID nineteen. And uh, we're, we've just wrapped up 78 interviews with physicians in um, New York City and New Orleans from specialties like uh, critical care, pulmonology, and emergency medicine, and some hospitalists, sort of looking at the challenges that they've encountered during the pandemic. So it, it's somewhat of a new direction for me because I've been thinking a lot about the profession of medicine, and there's a crisis of burnout that mm-hmm. really. Um, Motivated the the framing of this research, and that has been such a challenge for physicians throughout COVID. Um, but but there are certain threads that I'm pulling through because we're talking quite a bit about both physicians' moral experience and um, physicians' experience caring. Physicians' experience is caring for dying patients, and the their confrontation with the sheer magnitude of death that they are facing has been. A really profound theme in the interviews that we've done so far. So we're, we're sort of at the phase of just finishing up the interviews. And I'm really looking forward to diving into the analysis in the coming months.
1: Well, Mara, that sounds like really important work. Um, do you think it'll be a book?
0: I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I, I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around all the different um, articles that need to be written um, in the short term.
1: I'm sh- well I'm sure it'll it, I I look forward to reading the results in whatever form and wanted to um thank you again for coming on the show today.
0: Thank you Claire.